Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A-T-I, Sparks, as in Sparks are Flying, dot com. And when you enter your email, you'll be added to my mailing list as well. And you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area. So today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Jay Wiseman, who's a noted person in the sex-positive community. He's a best-selling author, a very in-demand educator, a noted expert witness, and a former law school professor. And regarding open relationships, he's the former life partner of one of the co-authors of the well-known book, The Ethical Slut. Jay's been a presenter at polyamory conferences and is currently working on a book about BDSM and polyamory. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks. It's, it's great to be here. So good to have you because you've just really been a voice in the non-monogamy ethics. Oh, I hope you're feeling okay. Um, you've, yeah. you've been quite a voice in the ethical non-monogamy community, and so I'm really ha- happy to have you here. Um, maybe you can start with your personal story and tell us a little bit about when you first became interested in open relationships in your own life. Um, well, I don't think I've actually, I'm not sure I've ever been monogamous. I, I think the first clue I may have had about this was when I was in the 11th grade and I had two girlfriends until my kid sister ratted me out. Uh, and uh, I think that was in 1966 mm-hmm. and then in 1968 at the recommendation of a friend I read a book called Stranger in a Strange Land Right. and I also read a book called The Harrod Experiment and those were my first exposures to um what we called at the time open relationships. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you had two girlfriends, they didn't know about each other. Like, how did you get ratted out? <laughs> no, at, at at the time they they didn't know about each other. They they knew mm-hmm. each other. The high school was only so big, but they mm-hmm. they didn't know. Each of them didn't know that I was seeing the other. Uh, uh, the idea that they might have agreed to that um, was not really conceivable. Although, thinking back on it, there's actually an earlier time in my life that might have been earlier, that might have been a hint, which was before I started a relationship with either one of them. There was this woman named Pam that I liked, and I asked her out on a date. And she agreed, and we went out on a date, and it was a perfectly nice date. And a while later, I asked her out on another date, and we went out on that date, and that was a perfectly nice date. And a short time later, I asked her on a third date, and she said, I'm sorry, Jay, I I can't go out with you. And I said, why not? And she goes, well, I'm going steady with Paul now. And I can recall being confused by that. Mm-hmm. Now, I can recall mm-hmm. thinking, okay, I understand that, you know, and, and, and again, I really didn't, didn't have the verbal skill to describe this then as, that I have now, but I was thinking, okay, I understand that you've entered into a relationship with Paul, um, 
but I don't understand why that means you can't ever go out with anybody else. Right. So your brain was just so, kind of wired that way from day one. I do, and I actually am of the opinion that mono to poly is a sexual orientation spectrum in the same way that the Kinsey gay to straight um, spectrum exists. Yeah, I believe that too. That's excellent. Um, so then you um, you read those two books, and then after that, did you start to practice kind of telling the people that you were dating that you were not monogamous, or I don't know, whatever you called it? <laughs> no. I think the term we used back then was open relationships. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, that the as more and more people started to understand that the possibility that that being in a con- being in an open relationship was a sane thing to contemplate. Um so so yes, I um I attended my first swingers party in mm-hmm. nineteen seventy one, if memory serves. Mhm. <clears throat> and of course, you know, uh <laughs> I I suppose there is such a thing as a monogamous swinger, but I don't think I've ever met one. <laughs> And the rest is history, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, kind of. One of the things I really liked most about uh, meeting Janet Hardy when, when I met her in 1990 is that we were both very definitely uh, looking for a non-monogamous relationship. Mm-hmm. So for those listening, Janet Hardy is the co-author of The Ethical Slut, which is a lot of a lot of people's first book they ever read about ethical non-monogamy. And um, it's really become kind of a household term for the non-monogamous community to call themselves ethical sluts, mm-hmm. uh, people who, mm-hmm. you know, want to have multiple partners and don't want to have any shame about it. Did, were you in relationship with her when she wrote the book? I certainly was. Um, that, that aging hippie running around in the first edition is me. Oh, <laughs> awesome. She she got a different aging hippie for the second edition. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, she's put me in a couple of her books, and I've put her in a couple of mine. That's sure. the occupational hazard of dating a writer. And there you go. <laughs> right. And so how did your writing come about? Uh, and how did the open relation? Well, you, you mostly have, your books are mostly about um, pinky stuff, right? Or they're usually something about sexuality. Yes. Um, I've published a total of 13 books. Oh. I'm working hard on my 14th right now. Um, well, Wikipedia hasn't kept up with you. It says you have eleven books. <laughs> <laughs> I should I should get somebody to update that. Um, <laughs> yeah, my my first book was a small book on meeting people through personal ads, and mm-hmm. that did pretty well. And then in 1990, I published the uh, Bay Area Sexuality Resources Guidebook. In mm-hmm. 91, I published a book called Tricks, More Than 125 Ways to Make Good Sex Better. Mm. And in 1992, I published the first edition of my most noted book, SM101. Right. Cool. So what are some of the sources of support? Uh, what were some of the sources of support when you were new? to the idea of open relationships because your books have been sources of support for so many people. So what did you use to learn what you were doing? Um, quite candidly, Samati, we, we didn't have a lot of support back then. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an enormous amount of social condemnation 
even among um, relatively left-wing or socially progressive people. I mean, you know, I was a Haight-Ashbury hippie for a while, and, you know, mm-hmm. even in that environment, this was uh, a little bit of a dubious proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, it, it was other kindred spirits, and we were all kind of groping, uh, if not in the dark, then certainly in the deep twilight. Um, <laughs> I I think the first real source of community and support I came across was when um, I actually found it um, as a as a Mensa spinoff. The there was a Harad community in San Francisco, which was more about non monogamous relationships than it was about swinging per se. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was where I met some of my early sources of support and my kindred spirits mm-hmm. and people like that. Right. Do you find that swinging was more acceptable earlier on than poly? And do you think it still is like in the, the larger social um, culture that we live in? Oh, Boy, that's a juicy question. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, for, forgive me, I am a former law school professor. Uh, could you please repeat the question? <laughs> Do you find that swinging is more acceptable in the larger culture than poly? Um, or did it used to be, and now they are, are they about the same? Like historically and currently, how would you compare the social acceptance of swinging versus polyamory? <laughs> The the big thing that jumps out for me regarding swinging versus polyamory, and um, there will never be an end to the debate about the similarities and the differences between the two, but mm-hmm. um, I met a significant amount of right-wing people at swing parties. Ah. And at swingers conventions, I I've been a presenter at swingers conventions and and a mm-hmm. vendor at swingers conventions, and um, <clears throat> there's a significant amount of Republicans who are swingers, okay. mm-hmm. and you, a lot of people at polyamory programs and conferences do not appear to be Republicans. Mm. So so mm. I think. I, I feel pretty confident about, about, that, about that. Um, hmm. <clears throat> well, in in that really excellent book, Sex at Dawn, you know they mm-hmm. they talk a lot about uh, how monogamy is a relatively new thing. If if you Considered in terms of the entire amount of human life on the planet, right? Um, the only guess I would have, and I, I would have to say that that this was a guess, would be that you know apparently people whose politics are relatively right wing find swinging either more appealing and or less scary than they find polyamory. Uh, mm-hmm. Why that would be, I'm not entirely sure. This this isn't something I've studied in depth, and I'll be very upfront about that. But you do run into uh, a lot more Republicans at a swingers event than you do at a poly event. I, I feel pretty confident mm-hmm. saying that. Hmm, interesting. That's something I'll have to pay attention to. <laughs> So um, what would you say has been your biggest surprise from practicing non-monogamy? Oh. I think my biggest surprise about practicing non-monogamy is similar to my biggest surprise about practicing BDSM. 
in both cases, I met a lot more women who had an interest in it than I thought I would meet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so there's a myth that yeah. this is just men, men are just trying to get laid and they're dragging their partners into it, but that's just not the reality, huh? Um, correct, correct. In fact, one of the things that I used to see at swing parties with some regularity, and I, I found this darkly amusing, is that very frequently when a couple would show up, it's very, very clearly the, the man's idea that they attend this event. And, and the woman is uh, quite, quite reluctant about doing so. Um, but if they keep coming back um, after several parties, when she started to make some friends and realize that these people aren't monsters and so forth, mm-hmm. she may start to participate. And in fact, uh, she may start to participate much more widely and much more enthusiastically than he is participating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to call this the second crisis point. Because it was not unheard of for the guy to suddenly call a halt to things when his, Uh you know, demure little housefrau all of a sudden was turning (laughs) into the good time had by all at a swing party. (laughs) Yes, and I I believe the same thing happens with polyamory where um, a couple opens their relationship and the woman has three or four new boyfriends and the man can't seem to find anyone. And he's like, wait a minute, I know it was my idea, but uh, (laughs) I'm rethinking it now. And the wife is like, too late. (laughs) I've got all these partners now. (laughs) There's a a document out there. Um, uh, I have a um, FetLife account. I'm J underscore Wiseman on FetLife, and I have my own FetLife group, uh, J Wiseman's FetLife group. But one of the ongoing threads we have there is called the Polyamory to English Dictionary. And there's mm-hmm. a poly phrase, and then there's an English translation. And <laughs> the poly phrase is I think we should concentrate on each other for a while. And the English <laughs> translation is, you're getting a lot more action than I am. Time to clip your right. wings. Right. Very true. Right. And so that brings to mind this issue in polyamory where people say, well, let's try it. So um, let's try and see how it goes. But when they say that, if they don't have any experience with opening their relationship, they haven't thought about that there's going to be another person involved and they're going to have feelings too. And you can't just say, well, sorry, you were just an experiment. We don't need you anymore. I mean, they might do that, but it's unethical and it's not fair. So I know in more than two, they talk about that a lot about, you know, if you're going to go into this lifestyle, you have to think about the other people's feelings too. Now you have more than just the two of you to think about. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm Mm-hmm. That's an excellent have you, point. Yeah. Have you experienced that in your relationships where one of your partners wants you to dial it back or, um, but you're already involved with someone else or have you seen that happen? Um, I've certainly seen it happen. Um, I've been pretty involved in the Bay Area polyamory community for at least the last 20 years. Um, In my personal relationships, um, yes, I've, I've seen that. I, I, I think when, when I was with Janet, um, we, we definitely tried to be mindful on that point. Mm-hmm. Um, the The earlier relationships I had, um, my my, to use a term that I know some people think is a suboptimal term, uh, my primary partners were were not entirely happy about the fact that I wasn't monogamous, 
but we struggled along with it as as best we can. Um, mm-hmm. So were you in some relationships where your partners weren't seeing other people and only you were? I never made that a condition. I I was certainly mm-hmm. willing for my partners to see other people. I just to, you know, in, in some cases, that wasn't something they were very interested in doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So we would call that now a, a poly-mono relationship. So how did you handle that in your relationships where you were the only one dating other people and your partner wasn't? Was <clears throat> uh, How did you handle the challenges that your partner had? It It was difficult. It it quite honestly was difficult. As I said, I I think I think that thinking of monopoly as a spectrum, just like sexual orientation can, mm-hmm. is thought of as a spectrum, is a very useful mm-hmm. thing. And mm-hmm. I'm at one place on the spectrum and my partner is at another place on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. there were, there were other things about our relationship that made us want to stay together. Um, but it, it, it was hard. It, it was hard. Um, there, there were, you know, I I can't think of any of my personal relationships that ever ended where a conflict over monogamy versus polyamory or monogamy versus non-monogamy was you know the the reef that the ship crashed against and sank but mm-hmm. I certainly heard that in other people. Mhm. Right. Yeah. So what are some of the other other challenges besides that that you've come up against uh, in practicing open relationship all these years? What are some of the other biggest challenges? Hmm. Well, it's it's funny when I was when I was in law school, uh, I was pretty out about being both kinky and poly, and I only got asked once about being kinky, but a substantial percentage of my classmates and a few others took me aside and said, so, so how does this poly thing work? What's, what's going on with that? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I started telling people was once you throw out the template, everything gets discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, things you would not have believed you needed to discuss. Guess what? Mm-hmm. You you need to discuss them. Mm-hmm. Um, Janet and I had a bit of a polyamorous mishap uh, on, on one occasion because uh, I was out doing stuff. I, I forget what. Um, and she was seeing somebody in our bedroom. And and I knew this was happening and I was perfectly okay with it. I came back to the house and there in the bedroom there and my house slippers and my very comfortable to wear around the, the house clothing is in there with them. And my street clothes are feeling increasingly hot and increasingly uncomfortable. And, <laughs> So I decided that I was going to, in a very low-key way, go into the bedroom and get my house clothes and my slippers, and that would be that. And I thought I was extremely low-profile in how I did it. And um, Mm -hmm. this was not a universally shared viewpoint. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things we did after that is – Okay, if you know Janet's going to be with somebody, and you know Jay's going to come back to the house, uh, 
let's make sure his slippers and his house pants and stuff like that <laughs> are someplace other than in the bedroom. And one of the things that I took away from that was that solved the problem. In other words, it wasn't as if we solved that problem and, oh, my God, another one immediately pops up. Mm-hmm. So, so that said to me that the problem about my house pants and my slippers was indeed about my house, my house pants and slippers and not mm-hmm. a mask for something deeper. Yes, that's often the case is we use that as a, a cover for a feeling that we don't want to have or a need we don't want to speak up about. Mm-hmm. But I think that's pretty cool that you were okay with sharing your bed because a lot of people have that as a boundary that, you know, as long as you find another bed to fool around in, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but you guys were okay with with sharing your same bed. So that shows kind of a a more open, less jealous kind of setup. And it was really just a practical I, thing that you want you wanted your comfortable clothes. Yes. I have a um a friend um and she she doesn't live in the Bay Area anymore but we were um play partners and lovers for quite some time and then she found herself in her first um non-monogamous relationship and she actually went around to all the non-monogamous people all the non-monogamous couples she knew and asked them what their relationship agreements were. And she actually mm-hmm. constructed a relationship agreement spreadsheet. Cool. Yeah, this this was so very much very typical of what she would do that I found it highly amusing. Uh, I'm going to mm-hmm. have to ask her for a copy of that spreadsheet sometime. I think it would be quite insightful about, you know, what, you know, where various couples um drew their lines. Right. And I do find that when people are new, when a couple is new to opening their relationship, they tend to need a lot more agreements. Um, mm-hmm. My agreement tend to be these days after 20 years, my only agreement is if you have unprotected sex with somebody, let me know before we have sex. And that's it. And, and outside of that one agreement, I just get to ask for what I need when it comes up, like, for example, if your partner is going to be in our bed, can you have them not go in my drawer because I have things in a certain place? I know where they are. And, how, you know, so mm-hmm. I, you know my, mm-hmm. my needs have gotten more, um, like a lot of people when they're starting wouldn't even think of that, like I said, sharing bed and so forth. Um, but I think we just, we just get more laissez-faire as we get more comfortable with the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. One of the agreements that I've heard with observable frequency in the swingers community, and, and and to a lesser degree, but still there in the poly community, is no falling in love. Oh, yes. <laughs> and and then there's a lot of ways basic, that they try to go, – go ahead, sorry. My My basic feeling is, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> exactly. Well, then there's specific ways people try to prevent falling in love, like you can only have three dates or you have to be home by midnight or you, can, um, you can't kiss past 11 p.m. I've heard that one before. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, and, and the other, on the reverse side of that, I had a client recently that, that had been telling her partner, you know, don't worry, it's just sex. And I said, well, it's okay if it's more than sex. Like, why are you limiting yourself to it just being sex? Because, you know, it's it's not a, a bad thing if you also have love with your sex. Like, <laughs> that's a good mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> and she was like, oh, okay, really? <laughs> I get to have love too? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, with Without getting... Um, into specifics, 
uh, regarding some of the partners that I've had open relationships with, it's kind of interesting that I tend to be the one who gets into uh, years-long secondary relationships. Well, mm-hmm. they seem to prefer um, shorter, perhaps more intense kind of things. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that's like the stereotype would be that women would want more relationships and men would want more sexual conquest, but you're finding kind of the opposite in your life, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, cool. And I think my longest secondary relationship lasted four and a half years. And mm-hmm. we are good friends to this day. Excellent. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Jay Wiseman, a prolific writer and author of 13 books, including the best-selling book, SM101. So, Jay, um, your next book is about BDSM and polyamory, and I'm really curious about the intersection of those two lifestyles. Can you talk a little bit about some of the concepts you're working on for your book? Sure, sure. Um, While I'll probably end up calling it BDSM and polyamory because those terms are of increasing familiarity to people, what it's actually turning into is a book on DS and uh, non-monogamy. The DS mm. standing for dominant submissive relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, the, the, there's an argument that BDSM without a DS element is qualitatively indistinguishable from uh, vanilla sex, or mm-hmm. From exchanging massages is, is perhaps a better way to to go about it. But the the essence of the distinction is that, um, and I don't mean this term in a in a in a in a bad way. Uh, the vanilla polyamory is egalitarian, or at least putatively so. Whereas DS and non-monogamy is frequently explicitly hierarchical. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets interesting. You know, you have, if you have, say, one dominant and two submissives, you know, the submissives have made a commitment of emotional surrender uh, subject to nuance and negotiation, of course, uh, to the dominant. And their relationships mm-hmm. are not at all necessarily the same kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So your book mostly focuses on the DS type of relationship and uh, the types of setups where the, do- the dominant has more than one submissive? Yes. Um you can have a fine old time debating whether a submissive can have two dominants um, with each of the dominants of equal status. Mm-hmm. That um, that would be a challenge. I yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could have a hierarchy dominant who allows another dominant to top their submissive. You could. And one of the things you see in non-monogamous DS that you pretty much don't see pretty much anywhere in the polyamory community is what some people call the, the house. Like they might call it the house of BDSM or something like that. And there may be three or even four levels of hierarchy in this house. Um, do you mean a house where people live? Um, 
it can include a, a house where people live, but it, it's a uh, it's an acknowledged relationship structure, which oh. in some cases has more than two levels. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a metaphorical house. Um, I guess it's it, it's a metaphorical house that in some cases includes an actual physical house. Okay. I actually was I uh, was talking to this one woman a while back, and she had been on the lowest level, which is not necessarily at all a bad place to be, let me add, but she had been on the lowest level of this house, and there was an alpha couple at the top of it. And I asked her, I said, okay, what was it, what was it like being in that house? And she thought about it for a moment, and then she looked at me and she said, it was like having parents. But parents that she has sex with? (laughs) Apparently so, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The best kind of parents. (laughs) Yeah, there's mom and dad. I got to get their permission to go to the mall or or whatever. Right. Right. And so what are, what are some of the other um, issues that you see in the intersection of DS and non-monogamy? Hmm. <laughs> well, the fact that these are challenging questions is one of the reasons why I feel I need to write the book. Right. Um, um, well, I, I can tell you at one point in my life, I had a switch relationship with a primary partner and I had two secondary master-slave relationships. And this may seem obvious for me to say this. Uh, Well, there's, there's different levels of knowing something. There's different levels of understanding something. And one of the things that became more and more clear to me was, oh, my God, are they ever not interchangeable parts? Mm -hmm. For example, were you – sorry, go ahead. Well, for example, my two slaves, um, one of them I called my little samurai because if I gave her a task to do, she would work herself into exhaustion and then weep because she couldn't do more. In fact, I, <laughs> I learned I had to build in a stop command, something like that. It was uh, somewhat similar to programming a computer. It's like, okay, I want you to do this task, and then when these parameters have been achieved, I want you to stop because otherwise mm-hmm. she would have the tendency to keep on going. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the other one was very rambunctious, very bratty. Um, and to, to quote her on this, until she got what she called the look. And when <laughs> she got the look, she knew it was time to come and quietly kneel by my side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes, they were both delightful women. I'm, I, I've been in touch with both of them. Our, our relationships ended uh, uh, more than 15 years ago, but I'm, I'm still in touch with both of them. I've been in touch with both of them this month, in fact. One of them, I went to mm-hmm. their wedding. You know, we have very much remained in contact, and uh, we're close. Mm-hmm. So I could see how non-monogamy would be helpful if somebody is a switch, and they, even if they have a primary partner, their primary partner may not also be a switch. So it's like what our friend Kathy Labriola talks about. People often practice non-monogamy because they want something different than their current relationship or they want something more either more or different so 
so she talks about being mm-hmm. bisexual, that it never occurred to her to just have one lover because she was always bisexual. So I'm also imagining if someone is a switch, it might make sense for them to have one relationship where they're the dominant and one where they're the submissive. And that would be a, a good reason why somebody would want to be polyamorous. Uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, another configuration I've seen is what I call, and again, I don't mean this in a bad way, I call it vanilla spouse syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, the you know, person is married, they've got a, a primary partner who's a perfectly nice human being, but they're just not kinky at all. And mm-hmm. this person, you know, um, I... You, you you could get me to seriously entertain the notion that kink is a spectrum as well as sexual orientation and um, mono non-monogamy. But uh, mm-hmm. no, I, I know people. Actually, I know I know many, many people who left otherwise pretty good relationships because they just weren't willing to spend the rest of their life uh, not engaging in BDSM and their spouse wasn't comfortable with them doing BDSM with them or with anybody else. And so they, mm-hmm. they ended the relationship behind it. And um, I've, I've heard many of these stories uh, mm-hmm. and they're painful and one of the things that I've noticed about it, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, the stories that I heard were almost entirely about men leaving relationships, and, and I apologize if this seems heteronormative, um, but I, I would have heard sad stories of men leaving vanilla women, and then starting in the 90s, the frequency of the story of women leaving Vanilla men started to be heard more and more often. Mhm. Yeah, and the same is true even for activities that fall in the spectrum of vanilla sex. But you know, maybe somebody wants anal sex, or they want rougher sex, or you know, they want some different kind of sex than they're getting with their primary partner. And non-monogamy mm-hmm. is a perfectly viable way for them to be able to stay together and still be able to get those needs met and not feel like they have to sacrifice this part of themselves for the rest of their life because just because of this old model that we're trying to fit ourselves into and not doing very well at it as a, a general society. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the lines that I like best from the book uh, Sex at Dawn was the line that basically said, um, even in cultures that have the death penalty for adultery, there's adultery happening all over the place. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, prohibition just does not work for any kind of human behavior. <laughs> not so much. No, not so much. <laughs> So, Jay, you're also a an expert witness. Can you talk a little bit about, about what you do in that realm? Or what kinds of things are you expert witness for? Um, well, there's two types of witnesses. There are what are called lay witnesses and expert witnesses. And lay witnesses can, to round it off a bit, they can testify about what they experienced. They can testify about what they saw, what they heard, what they did. But they generally cannot offer opinions. Like, mm-hmm. For example, let's say somebody buys a toaster and they get the toaster home and they go to make some toast and they sustain a severe burn on their hand. And so they sue the Acme Toaster Manufacturing Company for manufacturing a defective toaster. Well, mm-hmm. I I don't I can't tell whether or not a 
toaster was reasonably manufactured. I'm, I'm no disrespect, but I'm pretty sure you can't tell whether somebody mm-hmm. was negligently manufactured a toaster. So they bring in somebody right. with a PhD in toasterology, and <laughs> that person can that person can express an opinion that the jury can hear about was this toaster or was this toaster not properly manufactured. And there's Mm -hmm. thousands of expert witnesses. There's expert witnesses on skydiving, on restaurant management, uh, on auto repair. Uh, You you name it, there's an expert witness or Mm -hmm. usually many expert witnesses. Uh, mm-hmm. In criminal trials, they bring in if the if the defendant's sanity is at issue, they bring in expert witnesses to evaluate the defendant's sanity. And these mm-hmm. experts, after examining the defendant, can express an opinion about the defendant's sanity. Uh, my particular area of expertise is. Because I have a substantial medical background and because I have a substantial background in BDSM, I've written a lot on erotic asphyxiation, uh, Mm. suffocating or choking your partner in an erotic context. Mm -hmm. And I've spent quite a bit of time writing about this and debating about this. I've... Oh, oh my God, I've actually spent more than 20 years on this. And about 15 years ago, I was approached by an attorney who said, um, Mr. Wiseman, it took me a while to find you. Uh, I've got a client who's on trial for murder because he uh, suffocated someone to death while they were having sex. And now my client is asserting that that was a consensual activity. Right. And so the question comes up of was this or was this not a a consensual activity? And the other question comes up of what exactly was the mechanism of death? Because there's at least one mechanism that can be – that people have died from only a few seconds – of being choked or being suffocated. Mm-hmm. And legally, that's very significant because it allows the defendant to argue, I didn't intend for that to happen. Mm-hmm. No, it, it, it just did. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, um, wow. yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty grim, pretty grim work, Samadhi. Uh, qu- quite honestly, I I tell people expert witness work is my least favorite work uh, to make. It's my, it's my least favorite way to make money. Right. But, I, <laughs> but between my medical background, my legal background, and my kink background, I'm you, you overlap those three Venn diagrams, and you've got this aging hippie in San Francisco. Occupying that space, right? So since we went down that rabbit hole, do you have a a pointer or two for people to not die while doing that in their play? <laughs> I quite honestly, I wish I did. I have not been able to discover any harm reduction measures that I believe are reliable enough to bet a human life on. Um, mm-hmm. It's the the physiology of this is very very different from the physiology of other ero- erotic activities. Um, some aspects of it are not obvious, and some aspects of it are even counterintuitive. And it doesn't care that you think it's counterintuitive. Um, there there are no landmarks. We we can't say that if you choke your partner for fewer than X number of seconds, you, you won't kill them. We, mm-hmm. We've got quite verifiable case reports where that wasn't so. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, 
It's a Russian roulette risk model. Mm-hmm. And you can't make Russian mm-hmm. roulette safer by pulling the trigger more softly. Right. <laughs> Good analogy. Okay, well, don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> well, um, so what, what I tell people is it's uh, uh, it, it's kind of like jumping out of an airplane where you're wearing a parachute, but you don't know how high up in the air the plane is, and the parachute takes 500 feet to deploy. So it's basically take the risk or don't take the risk, but don't kid yourself that there are things you can do that uh, meaningfully reduce the risk. Take it or don't take it, it. but yeah. Well, got it. That's pretty clear. Thank you. Um, And so also, what are some of the unique uh, challenges around the legal aspects of polyamory and people that practice non-monogamy? Um, I actually have got a presentation that I've done at a couple of polyamory conferences called Legal Paperwork for Alternative Relationships. Mm -hmm. And the basic idea there is that if you marry somebody, you automatically acquire a number of rights and entitlements regarding them and their property. Um, Mm -hmm. But if you're not married, then you don't acquire these rights no matter how long you live together. Um, And fewer than half the states in this country uh, recognize common law marriage. California does not recognize common law marriage. Uh, Fortunately, there are some documents that you can fill out that will give your relationship uh, some legally recognized standing. You you can have a a will prepared. You can have an advanced health care directive prepared, which, among other things, you can specify who was allowed to visit you if you were in the hospital or otherwise institutionalized. Uh, I have seen many, many Bad cases over the years, uh, particularly since I got out of law school, of uh, two people are in a a relationship but they're not married, and something happens to one of them, and they end up in a semi coma in the hospital, and the the blood relatives come in and literally shove their lover physically out into the cold. Mm-hmm. And and there's legally, there's nothing the lover can do about it. Um, you can you can create documents specifying who owns what percentage interest in property and so forth. Uh, Nolo Press has a couple of uh, books out that are good guides for this. Um, they. It wouldn't be too difficult to adopt those documents to a uh, relationship involving more than two people. But but Mm -hmm. the basic, the bottom line there is that if you're not capital M married, then your relationship does not automatically come with these entitlements and privileges. You, you have to, you know, create documents to establish those, uh, Fortunately, as long as a crisis hasn't hit yet, that's not terribly difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. And um, actually, what are um, if I may, go ahead. Let me add one thing here, because this this happens even for people in conventional marriages. Uh, if you're married, your spouse is not automatically your decision maker should a medical crisis arise and you are in a coma your your relatives get a vote too this is this is the genesis of the um that awful case the the Shivo case down in Florida some years ago and Shivo cases happen all the time um and the the parties involved have to go get a court order to establish medically what will or will not be done. So 
even if you are in a completely conventional monogamous marriage, I, I strongly encourage you to create an advanced healthcare directive where you can spell out if you are incapacitated, this person gets my, to make my decisions. If they're not available, this person gets to make my decisions. And if they're not available, this third person gets to make my decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank you for that. Okay, so in the last couple minutes, um, do you want to share any final thoughts you have about maybe about the distinctions between vanilla polyamory and BDSM polyamory? Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, uh, I think the essence of it is that vanilla poly is at least on paper uh, egalitarian, whereas DS non-monogamy um, has an implied and frequently very real hierarchy to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I I think I wrote in SM101 that having a slave is like having a lover, a child, an employee, and a pet all rolled into one. <laughs> That's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> and um, when you've got two of them, well, again, um, <laughs> things are going to get discussed. Just get ready for that. The, right. the other thing that I found is that the more people have got their own baggage, baggage properly stowed, the easier it is for them to be in any type of relationship from completely single to, you know, a group marriage, to a master-slave relationship, to whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, you know if, if you've got baggage, <clears throat> if, you know, it's, it's going to have to be dealt with. It's going to show up, right. It's going to... Sh- um, there's a discussion group here in San Francisco called the San Francisco DS Discussion Group. It meets once a month on the third Monday of every month in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. I've been attending its meetings for well over a decade. And mm-hmm. we've had many, many people come in over the years, some of whom were in relationships at the time, some of whom we're not and it's nice to have a forum where there's some very clueful experienced people can share their experiences of what works and what tends to not work excellent so we're almost out of time and i want to give you a minute or so to tell people how they can reach you um and if you uh, want to direct them to your books or anything so go ahead and, and take it away um, probably the easiest way to reach me is on uh, Facebook. You know, there's look, look, look for the guy with the long hair and the gray beard, uh, Jay Wiseman, <laughs> W-I-S-E-M-A-N. Um, and if you type my name into Google, a lot of stuff will come up. Uh, my my main book, SM101, is the number one best-selling nonfiction guide to exploring BDSM. Um, I also wrote a best-selling book on rope bondage. And I wrote a book called Dungeon Emergencies and Supplies, which Cracked.com called the sixth scariest sex education title ever. (laughs) Six, okay. And I teach... And as a former EMT, I teach first aid and CPR classes to the sex-positive community in the Bay Area. Great. Okay, and people can private message you on Facebook if they want to find you, or is your email yes. on there? Okay, um, cool. You can reach me at uh, jwiseman at yahoo.com. Uh, truth be told, okay. Facebook's easier. Okay, great. Okay, well, we're out of time, Jay, and I really appreciate we appreciate you being on the show with your wealth of knowledge. You truly are a wise man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're quite welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay. We'll talk to you later.
So uh, just to let our listeners know that I'll be taking a vacation from the show for a couple weeks, and we'll be back on August 14th with our guest, David Amiri. He's an international Tantra teacher. He's been on the show about a year ago, and he's been up to a lot of new things. He's since gotten married and um, has a lot of stories to tell. So uh, join us for our next episode on August 14th at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio. Good night, everyone. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.